There is a tendency that we do in our mind is to romanticize our own existence. We become the center of as the world turns. We are the leading actor. We have been cast. And we keep milking our history to give, to justify our existence, to give our existence meaning. And I want to suggest to you that there is a cost to that. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host. And you, you're part of this worldwide web of incredible souls who have this bend towards love and service and compassion and these many planes of consciousness that we live on. And so thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here. This episode is a continuation from the last one, 239, and it was taken from a study group Ramdas hosted in 1995, specifically on aging. And in it, he's talking about something we all have to grapple with at some point. As the, the statistic says, about 90% of us will be able to prepare for our deaths. And so what he's talking about is dealing with our past. And I think all of us know in some real sense that our past colors our present in many different ways. Well, I think we like to think that being present means that we just let go of the past. It's also very clear that uh, it informs the present. Um, the past colors what sort of information the brain lets in, what we're able to see, as well as the decisions that are sort of available to us in the moment. And so clearly, it's really important to digest past experiences so that they cloud the present less. Um, the yogis talk about this concept of tejas, this strong psychic fire um, that can help us sort of eat our experiences in a, a way, sort of like how the digestive fire breaks down food. And if it doesn't break it down well, then we have indigestion. And this idea that this psychic fire breaks down our past experience so that we can learn from them, so that we can grow and so that we can evolve, so that we change and the world change and that we, we are um, available for all of that with more flexibility. Um, and all of us have a history. All of us have a personal history that needs digestion, but also we're part of these national histories and these collective histories that often need a little bit of that light or fire or tejas. Um, a lot of things that we could turn to look at and learn from and grow and evolve. And whatever that is, whatever thing we need to turn and look at, whether it's individual or collective, compassion is a thread through all of it. And it's something we really strive for in everything we do at the network, through each of the podcasts, and at Love Serve Remember Foundation. So I do want to warn you that in this talk, Ramdas talks a lot about trauma. So if you have personal trauma and you're not feeling well-resourced today, then come back another day to listen. 
He also leads a very raw, powerful, and possibly disturbing contemplation um, around the bombing of Hiroshima, because this was recorded on the 50th anniversary of that event. And so with whatever trauma we are facing, um, it's important to be skillful, to titrate it in a way so it's not overwhelming or re-traumatizing. And so we resource ourselves, and there's lots and lots of ways to do that. And so I just wanted to let you all know that what's coming, but it's still a really fabulous talk and I hope that you will enjoy it. And if you're wanting to feel good um, in lots of other ways, we have something else that I want to offer, which is this incredible new Ramdas album that's coming out. And you might be wondering, how is Ramdas putting out a new album? Well, we took these five tracks from the 1973 box set and they were arranged by these incredible musicians like The Human Experience, Liquid Bloom, and John Pattern to just create these really heartwarming, sweet musical experiences. Um, the first track dropped um, last night and it was uh, listen, listen, listen to my heart song. And it's just so sweet. There's a video that goes with it. Um, and the whole album is available on December 7th. So find out more by going to ramdas.org slash music. And with that, I just want to say thanks for tuning in and being here. And again, thanks to the people who donate to help make this happen. And thanks to our sponsors who also allow this episode, this podcast, this network to happen so that you can hear these incredible talks by Ram Dass. So as always, we hope that you are well nourished by this episode and these teachings and whatever good may come from them. May it benefit you in your daily life and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all sentient beings. So here is Ram Dass, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Now, um, almost everybody in the psychological or spiritual domain that deals with the past in terms of spiritual work or psychological work, as one approaches death or gets very old, it is what they call it completing one's business, completing one's work. It means um, it, it's um, a process of going back into your past and reliving or remembering what happened, but not doing it only from where you were when you did it, but also bringing it into the present moment of where you are now. Because what you will look at in your history is a lot of experiences that have the emotional affect and the interpretation that they had at that moment and you've left them sort of frozen in time. And there is a way in which you bring the past into the present. I'll give you an example. I think one of the most powerful grieving experiences for me uh, has been about my mother's death. And she died in 1966 in uh, February. I'm sorry, uh, 67, beginning of February. And um, 
I had been taking a lot of psychedelics, and I had seen through the veil, and I saw that dying was only part of this, and I saw that there were these things also. And so she was surrounded by people who were saying, Gert, you're looking better. The doctor has a new remedy. You'll be up and around all the time. And then they go out in the cart and say she'll die this week. And I was sitting in with her, and I was um, just being with her, and she'd say, you know, Rich, I think I may die. And everybody else would say, don't talk like that. Don't be silly. And I'd say, I think you are. And then she said, and I told you this. She said, what do you think death's like? And we talked about that. And I said, you feel like somebody in a burning building. You're an old friend, and the burning building is going to burn, but you're here. Where are you going to go? I mean, you and I are here together. And there was a lot of solace in our being together. But then there was a point where she, she begged to be brought home from the hospital. She wanted to be in her own room. And finally, they agreed. They agreed. And they brought her home to her room. And... It was clear she was going to die, and um, I was visiting her, this was a Thursday, and I was about to leave to fly to California to do a show at the Santa Monica Civic Center that I had Friday night. And I knew she was going to die, and at that point they decided that she was too sick to stay at home, so they were going to take her back to the hospital. And she was pleading not to be taken back to the hospital, but my father and the doctors knew best. Because my father was too frightened to have the responsibility of her there, and the doctors wanted control of the situation, and they just, they saw only extending the life of the body. And I sat there knowing that she should be supported but I felt intimidated by this incredible system that everybody there was part of. And so I remained quiet because the wisdom I had developed about the thing beyond all of this and the different relation to death had come through drugs. And therefore, I didn't have the legitimacy do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't have the legitimacy to contend with that force that way. Because they would say, oh, you only, you know, he's under drugs, that's why he says that. But we know what's best. We know what's best. Now, that was 30 years ago, and you know and I know a lot has changed in 30 years. We have the hospice movement, we have lots of incredible stuff that happened. I left for California, she was moved back to the hospital, that night, my aunt, who had usually been with her, didn't stay that night, and at 6 in the morning, all alone in a hospital room, she died. Now, it's interesting that I carried that for years and years and years. She had trusted me. I had been there with her, and then I didn't support her need, her desire at that moment of what she needed to do. Now, <clears throat> so I've rerun the tapes many times. Now, I can rerun the tape of going back and being that person that's very insecure and feeling the overwhelming force, because I'm not that person now. No way am I that person. When I bring that historical moment up to the present, what I see is I understand perfectly why my father did what he did, why the doctors did what they did, 
why my mother did what she did, why I did what I did. And we were all part of processes that were resulting from our acculturation and our experiences. And we were all the different voices of our human condition, if you will. And I certainly, I can wish I had been different then, but I wasn't different. That's who I was. And in a way, the person who I am now can accept who that person was and not not blame that person, but understand it. Still say, I'd be better if you don't do it in the future, which I'm learning. Am I getting clear about this issue? So there is a lot about <clears throat> reconstructing or going back into the past to finish work, to leave what I call ill-digested pieces of this and that, that are full of our, that our history are full of, to bring them into your mind to relive them and then bring them into this present moment of awareness so that you can see, because all your memories, all your history is, except for those boxes, is what your mind says it is. That's it. Your mind is your history. And how, which slot you have it in in your mind is determining whether or not that particular event in your history is attractive or aversive. And do you remember what we said when we were talking about meditation? The clinging of the mind is the cause of suffering. Clinging of the mind is composed of attraction and aversion. As long as you're grabbing at something or pushing something away, it's got you. It's got you. You are not free to be in the moment because this thing from the past is pulling on you. And the art of how to bring the past into the present is to eat your attractions and aversions, to get through them, to understand why you were attracted and why it was aversive, and to allow it, because if you, you don't deny it, and you don't take an aversion and make it a new attraction, that's the same thing. These are all sticky things. The game is to get to the point where you can look at the universe as it is, non-reactively non-reactively. That doesn't mean you're not going to do good and you're not going to serve and you're not going to have stuff inside you going on, but you also have to cultivate the soul's perspective about the ego storyline. And that one is one that stands outside of the events and sees them for what they are. So you are both an ego and a soul. The ego has, I feel sad that I did that with my mother and I wish it had been different. The soul understands why that is the way it is. Now I am at least, I am living in both of these. Remember I said, the art of moving from ego to soul is not denying ego, but understanding that ego is part of something greater than itself, a soul. So you have a context in which to understand what's happening. Uh, it seems to me that story about my mother is a... Uh, a good entree to our Hiroshima moment together. Because I look back at that moment and I wish it had gone another way. But it didn't go another way. And part of my depth of understanding is now seeing what a profound impact the dropping of the bomb had on human consciousness in the whole world and how long that is continuing to affect us. 
I think it's useful to go back into that, to feel what it was about, to feel all the forces that were acting at that moment, and to embrace the whole thing into yourself as part of the pain of the human condition, of the human suffering. And uh, how our fear and our power and our everything could lead us to do stuff that could uh, so realistically potentially destroy uh, preciousness of the life on Earth. So um, let's sit for a few minutes quietly. And um, and recognize that we are part of a culture that is that has models of reality that would legitimize the dropping of that bomb. And just look at the human condition from the point of view of what happened at Hiroshima of 50 years ago. now to be in Hiroshima on this day 50 years ago. And the terror and the havoc and the death and the fire and the skin hanging off the bodies. seeing how much suffering we can inflict on one another out of our fear and from our hearts let go forth from each of our hearts the fervent wish that all beings may be free from suffering suffering of the torment of Hiroshima and the suffering of the fear that leads people to do that to somebody else. It's all part of suffering. 
May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. If you could feel the process then, what I was doing in the story about my mother and what we were doing in the story about Hiroshima and that memory is we are embracing the past into the present. <clears throat> when I was in training as a psych psych psychologist, psychotherapist afterwards, I was in a Freudian institute and I was being analyzed by a Freudian, and we spent a great deal of time on my personal history. And the history was real. Later, I started to embrace other kinds of more existential therapies, where the history was what was left in the mind now from whatever happened then, who knows what happened. And so what we're really doing is reorganizing the attics and cellars of our mind, cleaning out some stuff, burning some of it, hopefully, and also bringing it up to date so that you, as a conscious person now, can appreciate the horrible beauty of life, of all of it. Because it is. It's horrible and it's beautiful, both. And that applies to your abuse experiences. I mean, we are in a culture now where it is one thing to acknowledge it, to appreciate how it came to be, how everybody got caught, how my mother was a product of her mother, who was a product of her mother, and my father was the product, and the culture, and the socialization system, and the doctors, and the whole thing. See how the whole thing works see all the pain, see all of the feelings that came to you as a result of all of that, appreciate it all, allow it to exist, so there's no uh or uh. So you end, uh, you end the fascination with your own history. There is a tendency that we do in our mind is to romanticize our own existence. We become the center of as the world turns. We are the leading actor. We have been cast. And we keep milking our history to give, to justify our existence, to give our existence meaning. And I want to suggest to you that there is a cost to that. It's fine to delight in it. I used to fly an airplane. And I've had many, many stories that could have you sitting on the edge of your chair, and it's a wonder I'm alive. There's no doubt about it. And I can, over a beer, tell you at length many stories. What I notice is when I start to tell those stories, I turn into somebody else. They are not stories of my now. They are stories of my then. And who I was then is not who I am now, because who I am now is a lot more of this who I was then was there. 
And most of the romanticizing of the story keeps sucking us back into being trapped in somebody with a personal history. So I say honor those things, bring them out, celebrate them, write about them, feel them, and then allow them, and then get on with it. It's the clinging of the mind that causes the suffering. You don't deny it. That isn't the way out, because it's still got you. Pushing it away or grabbing it, it's still got, I'm not gonna think about that. I'm gonna be in the moment, I'm not gonna think about hippopotamus. I will not think about a hippopotamus. Try, you can't do it. Now there are events in our, all of our lives that were particularly traumatic, that were very powerfully imprinted in us because of the way they happened. Some moment of horror or moment of unexpected something. For many of us, the things that capture us in our memories are not the things that we can't bear to think about because they're so aversive. They've got us, but they've got us deep down in and we can't approach them. But because they were so pleasurable, they have us. For many people, raising their children was so pleasurable, they never can get over it. They can't get over it. For somebody else, athletic prowess in youth. How many stories have we read of the poignancy of somebody who was athletic, a, a leader in athletics in uh, college or early years, and then their body ages, and then they live the rest of their life giving their testimonial of how they were, how it was. Now, when you had an experience that was very passionate, either with trauma or beauty, those power of that experience is really, it's like burned into your mind, it's very strong. But I can say to you that as you cultivate the ability to be in the moment more and more deeply, the power of the experience of the moment is more powerful than the experiences that were very powerful historically that were based on needs or desires or fears. In other words, as you move out this set of circles as you move into the greater and greater space, the intensity and the fullness of the experience increases. It's a great line, a Chinese line that says, you can't stop the birds of sadness from flying over your head but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. <laughs> now, uh, part of what we're talking about completing the past is the issue of grieving, grieving about losses. Losses of dreams, losses of what you didn't ever do that you had thought you'd do. It didn't become that you thought you might become. Losses of friends, 
losses of loved ones. There's a This is a letter that refers specifically to moving from here to here, from ego to soul. It's a letter that I wrote to a couple when their young daughter, 11-year-old daughter, was went off to play tennis with her girlfriend, and they were both brutally raped and murdered. And uh, I was asked to write a letter to the parents because we had... Um, they come to workshops and lectures and so on. And I just uh, realized I had to write it right away. And it just, the, the demand, the horror of that situation, because the loss of a child is perhaps the, it goes against the rules of nature somehow. It's so powerful in the way it happened. And um, so I wrote this letter which I think is important to see this whole process. Dear Stephen Anita, Rachel finished her work on earth and left the stage in a manner that leaves those of us left behind with a cry of agony in our hearts as the fragile thread of our faith is dealt with so violently. Is anyone strong enough to stay conscious through teachings as you are receiving? Probably very few. And even they would have only a whisper of equanimity and spacious peace amidst the screaming trumpets of their rage, grief, horror, and desolation. I can't assuage your pain with any words, nor should I. For your pain is part of Rachel's legacy to you. Not that she or I would inflict such pain by choice, but there it is. And it must burn its purifying way to completion. For something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. And it is only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. Now is the time to let your grief find expression. No false strength. Now is the time to sit quietly and speak to Rachel and thank her for being with you these few years and encourage her to go on with her work knowing that you will grow in compassion and wisdom from this experience. In my heart, I know that you and she will meet again and again and recognize the many ways in which you have known each other. And when you meet, you will know in a flash, know what now it is not given you to know, why this was the way it was. Our rational minds can never understand what has happened. But our hearts, our intuitive hearts, if we can keep them open to God, will find their own intuitive way. Rachel came through you to do her work on earth 
which includes her manner of death. Now her soul is free and the love that you can share with her is invulnerable to the winds of changing time and space. And love Ramdas. Now for them, that moment was immediate. But over the years, and in working with grieving with people, because I do a lot of work with grieving people, I encourage them to grieve, first of all. No false strength. Don't push it under the carpet or it's got you. You have got to open to the pain of the loss and realize your heart is broken. When that has gone on, and you keep rehearsing what happened and rehearsing your, the person and how much you loved and your loss and your self-pity and your anger and all of that keeps going on and going on. It's like a roller coaster. You come up for air and you think you're oh, done and then you get down again. And then you arrive at a place where there is a little quiet space in your being. And with somebody you have tasted love with, you have been in a space of love, albeit for a moment, then at that moment, when you become quiet, you are back in that moment of love and you are present with the other being in love because souls exist together in love independent of death. And that's why the statement, love is stronger than death. That this love transcends this death. And when you've met another person, and in the I-thou relation that Martin Buber talks about, when you have, you have experienced an encounter, not just a, uh, not this between people, not where you're just, hello, thinking about them, but where you really, there is a, a real experience of being in being together, in presence together, in love together. That moment, that moment beyond time, is the moment beyond time. That's the statement, I've, I've said this to you before, Hakuin, the Japanese poet, said, your coming and going is nowhere but where you are. And that if you're in this moment, this is the moment. It includes all the other moments. It's not separate from. All of the moments enfold into this. So as I said before, if you say to me, are you happy, Ramdas? I would say, yes, I am happy. Because I am happy. If you say to me, Ramdas, are you sad? I would say, yes, I am sad. Because I am also sad. And if you look at all the emotions, they are all present because in this moment is the fullness of everything that was and will be. And the mystery of coming into the present moment where you beat time. That's what happens when your mind gets so one-pointed in solving a problem. Like Einstein, he couldn't remember where his house was or whether he was, you know, like all this stuff. Just those qualities of getting so focused, you laser your mind through time into timelessness. And part of what I have been doing for 30 years is moving in and out and in and out and in and out of time dimensions 
and learning how to cultivate them simultaneously so that I am not living in time and I have a watch on it. And I have a calendar and I was here on time. I am in time and not in time. And if you can just hear that, now you can hear part of your curriculum for getting free of being trapped in the issue of aging so that you can celebrate and enjoy it. Because each moment is, ah! Oh. I call people on the phone. I mean, I, two days ago, I had a woman in Hawaii who was about to lose a foot that afternoon. And, uh, then I was with a stockbroker from, from LA, from Brentwood, who's got leukemia. And then I was on the phone to a VA hospital to a guy who's got advanced um, skin cancer that's metastasized into his lung. And in each case, it was the same thing. Call, walk into the pain and fear in the person's mind, share it with them, listen to them, get them to talk about what's happening, what are you feeling, and constantly stay in here rather than in here and keep inviting the person in. And if you're here, you do that naturally until finally the two of us are just hanging out together, seeing the story of life unfold. And their story is this illness or this hospital or this boredom or this fear or this pain, but they are not the hospital or the boredom or the fear or the pain, or they are not only that. You call them and they think this is real. By the end of the conversation, they are here and here. And that becomes what you offer other human beings. You offer them the space of your own consciousness as an environment through which they can become free of the entrapment in a way of seeing reality that is causing so much suffering for them. At some point, I'll talk about um, physical ailments. We're going to talk about the body and stuff like that. But I remember going in for an operation on my Achilles tendon. And uh, as I was wheeled down the hall, it was, wow, feel what that feels like. And then the operating room, gee, and then this, and then that. And the moments, if you weren't busy being frightened, which is just a state of mind, what the hell that's about. Frightened is built into it. It isn't built into it. It's what you bring. It's what you bring. And if you can keep coming back, what at the moment there is is a benevolent-looking man looking down at me with his mask on and all that stuff. And there's the smell of this and that, and there's all this stuff, and that's what is. The minute I put it in context of what was or what will be, I get into my judging mind and I decide, is this as good as that or is this better or worse or do I wish I were here or there or whatever? And you're back in future and past. You keep coming back into the moment and that's what you do with pain, but we'll talk about that later. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. 
we can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. <laughs>